Hi, this is Bill Cumby. I'm a teacher at First Church Ministries in uh, Newport News, Virginia, and we're uh, going through the book of Genesis. We're actually at the flood narrative today, so I'd like to open us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time we have together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for fellowship, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which uh, is given to us to help us understand who you are and to love you more and draw closer to you. Lord, I pray that as we study your word, uh, you will just open our hearts and minds to, again, love you more, see you clearly, see the, the, your great love for us, and, uh, and, and enhance our desire to be with you through eternity. We pray in your name, Jesus. So uh, we are in Genesis again, and uh, we, are, uh, we took quite a break uh, over uh, as I had to deal with some other stuff. And so we're now into Noah. Um, again, this screen that we talk about, this is the important uh, verse, verse 27 of chapter 1. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so what we're, we're going to be looking at now, and we're doing that again, a quick background, but we're just seeing how God unfolds his history to call a people to him, uh, a nation to him, and then a, uh, the world to him through Jesus. So Genesis was given to the Israelites after being freed from slavery, and it was given to them at Mount Sinai, where they also received the civil, moral, and religious laws for the community. And it basically structured on uh, in five sections, actually ten sections. That these are the generations of we're going to be talking about in this section. Um, in Genesis chapter one through um, chapter two, verse three is a prologue. It sort of talks about God uh, being uh, the creator of everything and the furnisher of everything. That there's only one God, and the high point of that chapter is really the creation of mankind in the image of God. And then we get into chapter two, where we see that we get uh, we start again with God creating man, and then talking about man, his his uh, Eve, his wife Adam and Eve, and then the temptation and the fall, and after that the birth of two children, Cain and Abel, and Cain slays Abel, and Cain is cursed and is driven from the. And so it talks about a generation of from Cain coming down to Lamech. And then again, that's a second cycle. And then in chapter um, uh, chapter five, it starts again in a third cycle, creation of mankind. It goes all the way again back to the creation of mankind, Adam and his descendants through the line of Seth to Noah. And then we get the sixth, uh, uh, the the um, the the fourth um, or third generation of um, the continuation of the line of Seth through Noah. Sorry about that. Um, sometimes I stumble a bit on these as I integrate them in here. Um, primeval history has five. These are the generations of. Um, primeval history is pre that history before the flood. And then um, patriarchal history is there's five uh, generations of. There's actually listed six times, but there's really five of them. Uh, Esau is actually recorded twice uh, right next to it itself. And when we get to that, we'll talk about that. Uh, but these are the five five generations of and the five after. So scripture is structured uh, and, and the uh, Genesis account is structured by God um, uh, as given to Moses. And there were probably these accounts that were already out here um, that, that God uh, inspired Moses to write about and they're structured in a certain way. And so, so there, there are memory aids in here. Um, 
some believe the six days of creation are memory aids because you you actually have the creation of, of the heavens and the earth, the creation of the waters and then the land, and then you have the filling of the heaven and the earth, day four, and you have the filling of the waters with sea animals, and then day, day uh, six is the filling of land for land animals and creation of man. Here we have five generations, uh, five generations of before, five after. Uh, we, I, I'd like to put this in a graphic for the five that we did. We actually talked a little about this last week. I actually worked a bit on the graphic during this, uh, this past week. So we have uh, the prologue here, Adam and Eve, and then we have the first generation, the generations of heaven and earth, which really covers all the way through Cain. This is the line, the creation uh, and the fall and the results of the fall are experienced in Lamech, Cain, Cain to Lamech, and then it starts again with Seth, and Seth, it talks about the generations of Adam through Seth, and then the generations of Noah, which we're going to be talking about today, this section we're going to be uh, covering today. And then generations of Noah's sons and generations of Shem. So you get two generations before this and two generations after and the generations of Noah. And we're going to talk a little about that structure um, just to help us understand things. I, I want to fill in here. Um, Abel was uh, slain by Cain, uh, but he uh, it says by faith Abel uh, brought God a better offering than Cain did. And by faith he was commended as righteous. And when God spoke to him of his offerings, and by faith, uh, Abel still speaks, though he is dead. And that's in Hebrew. So there, there is no loss with God. There is, Abel's life is tragically cut short, and yet he's in, in heaven. And he's a witness to us still of, of faith, of living faith and righteousness. We see here uh, Adam and Eve. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we see this line going down to Cain, and then in Cain, the seventh generation from Cain, we is traced through in Genesis chapter four, the end of chapter four. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. So seven generations out from Adam and Eve, you get Lamech, and Lamech is uh, is is the epitome of mankind on its own. Okay, if Cain was avenged seven times, Cain was protected by God, and God said he would. They avenge himself seven times over anybody hurt Cain. You get this Lamech, he says, 77 times I will avenge myself. Oh, by the way, it was, it was interesting thinking about this because it made me think about Peter when Peter says, how many times must I forgive my brother? And he says, uh, seven times. And he says, no, 77 times or seven times 70. Yeah. And so we get this, this idea of the difference in the kingdom and, and the difference with mankind here. And you get Seth here, and Seth is the generations of... So it goes all the way back. If you look at the beginning of, of uh, Genesis 5, which we talked about, you see it go all the way back. So when God created man in his own image and his own likeness, he created Adam. And then when Adam was, uh, I forget how, I think it's 230 years old, it, it's something he says, he had uh, a son in his own likeness and image and named him Seth. And so we see the line carried on through Seth. And then we see at the seventh generation, again, a comparison here. And again, there's some structure in these genealogies to help us understand these differences here. In the seventh generation of the godly line of Seth, Enoch walks faithfully with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. And then we go into the generations of Noah. So Noah, it's interesting, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. 
that's not said anywhere else, okay? It's, 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 it, this is in this walk here. He walks faithfully with God. And so we get almost the, 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 the person God wanted to, to follow him here. And we get Noah, and we get the generations of Noah's son, Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We'll talk a little about that uh, probably next week when, when we get in, uh, hopefully into Genesis 10. And the generations of Shem and what goes on after that. And so we see here um, the unfolding of, of, of God's love for us and God's care for us. And, and the unfolding here is left to ourselves, there's this degeneration. Left here, um, Seth, it talks about a godly line, a non godly line, and intermarriage. And I, lest that be misunderstood, the difference between a godly line and an ungodly line is not necessarily one acts better than the other. It's their orientation towards God. Are you loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul? Are you, are you, that's the difference between the godly and the ungodly. And people, the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbors, yourself. And we can say, oh, we do that. Well, let me challenge you on this, okay? If you really are loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, you should be thinking about him all the time. Because if you have someone you love with all your heart, mind, and soul, your know, wife, your sweetheart, or whatever, then you're thinking about them all the time. That's part of what it is to love somebody with all your heart, mind, and soul. And so it's very easy to say, I love God and I love other people. But are you really thinking about God all the time? you really think, how can I please God? How can I live a life please? So one of my favorite science fiction writers, Robert Heinlein, defined love as, Love is the condition in which you care more about the other person's happiness than your own. Okay? Do you really care about pleasing God more than your own happiness and pleasure? That's what we're talking about here. And that was a godly line that was through there that, that, that got married with an ungodly line and became more interested in the things of the world. Not that those things are not useful and nice. God's given us creation for our, our benefit, our, for us to enjoy and for us to grow in. And yet the focus, if the focus is always there, that's an issue. And, and earlier I talked about, when I talked about the Sabbath, I talked about that as a gift from God to draw us away to help us understand that it's not all about just here. It's not all about the, the physical creation. And one day a week, God says, I want you to work on your love and thoughts of me. I really want you to focus on me and our relationship together. Uh, and when we don't do that, we become like, any other part of creation, the animals, okay? We, we, this is all there is, this is the world, and we might be the smartest of animals, but we're just animals. We don't realize the overarching theme of drawing closer to God and helping one another. And so we, we see this uh, sort of digression, but we see Noah here, and we say, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And you see this walking with God over and over again. We see our life portrayed as a journey, and who we walk with is very important. And so Noah walked with God. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the earth. Um, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it, is to be in length 300 cubits, breadth 50 cubits, height 50 cubits, 30 cubits. 
make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set the door in the ark on the side and make it with a lower second and third decks for behold i will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy the flesh destroy all flesh which is the breath with in which is the breath of life under heaven everything on earth shall die but i will establish my covenant with you and this is the first mention of the word covenant and we'll talk about that later and you shall come into the ark uh, you and your sons and your wife and give your son's wife with and your son wives with you and every living thing on earth with you and they shall be made male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds and of every creeping things on the grounds according to their kind two of every source shall become to keep you uh, them alive and I also take with you every sort of food that is to be eaten and store it up and it shall serve as food for you and for them I apologize when I read, I actually think about what I'm going to talk about, so I tend to stumble a lot. But, but I will say several things here. There's lots, a lot here, and we are not getting into the details on some of these things. There's a lot of good information on the Ark. Uh, there's actually a replica of the Ark constructed, I think, in Tennessee. You can go and see. And I would recommend you study those things. But I will say this. The Ark was... Uh, best I can tell, best of the numbers and best other scholars will, uh, will talk about it. It's about a quarter the size of an aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier holds 4,000 people. Um, and so you're talking about 1,000 people could fit in the, the Ark. Although an aircraft carrier has aircraft and turbines and, you know, and a bunch of things just to keep the ship going. This had none of those. And so if this was just holding people, it probably could have held um, two, three, four thousand people. But God, instead, God has seven people and all the animals in there. So it is big enough to hold everything. Um, uh, several things here. Uh, it took Noah 100 years to build. Now, you think you have to wait a long time for things? Think what it's like for someone to have to, even If you see, so he lived about 800 years or so. So take off the take off the zero. He lived 80 years. And I'm not saying that's so, okay? But I'm just trying to compare it to our life, okay? doing something for 10 years when there's no water around and no one's helping you and, and if you ask you what you're doing, and that's your life. And you've got your, you've got your three sons helping you, but you got to have other help because this is huge. This is a huge thing. I mean, building a ship, it, it would take 100 years. Even with, if you had dozens of people helping and none of those people are on the ark, okay? He works with these people. They don't believe what he's doing and how the finances came in, how he put, I have no idea. And yet there's a lot in here. It's a lot about patience. It's a lot about waiting on God. Um, God teaches us patience in different ways. One of the primary ways he teaches patience is um, he makes us wait. So I tell my dad joke here. You want to be a good doctor, you have to have a lot of patience. So, uh, So, you know, we have patience by waiting. God, I, I, don't pray for patience if you don't want to wait, okay? Because you're going to be waiting for patience. And, and Noah waited here. Um, he waited and he built it. Uh, I want to say a couple other things here. So scholars, uh, one of the reasons I went about the size of the ark and other things is this couldn't have happened. This is obviously a fabrication. No, it, it all could, it all makes sense. It it's 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 a bit far fetched, but so are the pyramids. Okay.
okay? And so is Stonehenge. And so so the, something big and massive on the scale, there's no problem with that, okay? The years, there's no problem with it. It just seems socio-realistic to us because we're not used to living in that kind of setting and environment and the ages and stuff like that. They also will pick at it and they'll say, we're going to see in the next section, it says, take with you two sorts of every kind of animals, you know, uh, their kinds. Um, it'll say to keep two. And then later it says, take seven clean animals. And they'll say, obviously, these are two accounts of the, the flood going in there. And he says two of every kind. But later he says seven of the clean kind. He says, when he says two of every kind, he means that, except for when he clarifies later that he wants seven of a certain kind. Okay, and you can tell that very clear here. No one, everything on earth shall die. Well, Noah didn't die. I mean, he's not. He Noah's when he says, "I'm going to destroy everything on earth." The reader understands he's not talking about Noah. So when he talks about two of every kind, and later he talks about seven of a kind, it's not that he is two different accounts that got mashed together. It's that. It's two of every kind, except for seven of a certain kind, and those seven kind of clean animals were actually for sacrifices. By the way, that brings uh, uh, us to know that there was a sacrificial there was a sacrificial system out there of some sort. That there were clean animals and unclean animals. A lot of things that we don't know about, and just because we don't know about them doesn't mean they didn't exist. And so we need to be very careful. And you know, every other text is studied by historians, they work with the author. Sometimes in scripture, they work against it. They're trying to tease out the differences. And it's not wrong to try to tease out the differences. What's wrong is to assume just because something says this and then clarifies it later on that it's two different accounts that two different people wrote. That's what, by the way, Genesis 1 and 2 goes to sometimes. Oh, two different accounts. They didn't know which one to include. They included both. Well, no, that's not true. What happens in Genesis 1 is this is a prologue talking about creation and the creation of man. And Genesis 2 starts the story of redemption. Adam and Eve, the fall, the degeneration through uh, Cain, through Lamech, and then the restart with, with Seth, the reboot if in common parlance for movies, the reboot through Seth, and then, going to, and then it not being able to survive, and then Noah becoming a second Adam, okay? Now, he's not a second Adam totally because he has a wife. So she's of different blood than he is, you know. And, and so there's not, it's not like the, we all came from Adam. Adam and Eve, Eve came from Adam. Everyone came from one. So it's not so quite true with Noah. And in Noah, not only did he have his wife, he had three kids and they had wives. And so they had, a, so, so the, the primeval line is preserved not just with Noah but with seven others. And through that spreads out the nations. And so um, the, the world is not a perfect place. It's no perfect than it was before, right after the fall. And we're going to see some of the things God does to make it livable so that this thing does not happen again. So we get, we get the flood here, uh, the preparations for the flood. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals and the male and his mate and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and the mate. Seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, 
to keep the offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will reign on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made will I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded. And here we see that he talks about seven animals of the clean, but two of pairs of the others. Noah was 600 years when the flood waters came on the earth. Now he started building it in five, when he was 500 years old. Uh, we don't know if he started immediately, but over a course of 100 years, he built this ark. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds of every kind that creep on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark and as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So there's, again, another thing. So some people think that there was no rain before the flood. I, I, I don't believe that. I just, you know, and I don't mean to argue with anyone. But if you have a hydrologic cycle, if you have water evaporating from the oceans and condensing over ground as the, it gets colder and nucleating, you get rain. So th I think there was rain there. Uh, so I'm not sure that, that there was, that he never seen rain before and didn't know what to expect, but he certainly didn't expect the earth to split open and the floodwaters to cascade out. That, that was, it seems to be a new thing. And the other thing is he had to go into the ark and wait seven days. Think what it's like. You're in the ark, we're ready to go, and you have to wait seven days. That's a long time of waiting, okay? Noah's patience was tested over and over again, but he was in the ark. Okay. Why didn't things break go in seven days? My guess is getting all those animals in the ark, it took seven days just to get organized the feed systems and everything else. When this rain starts and the ark breaks loose and it floats for 40 days and 40 nights, it's not, it's not just floating gently on the street. There's a tremendous tumult and stuff. And so the seven days were days of preparation, and yet there were days of waiting too. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on the third day, the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And so again, we see this account here, very specific days and stuff like that, because this is not meant as a fanciful account. This is meant as an historical account. And so the days and numbers are in there, maybe representing some other stuff as far as numbers go but also really trying to document that this was an historical event that took place. And the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And on the very day that Noah and his sons Shem, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and his three wives and his son with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind and every winged creature and they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh that was there in the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God has commanded, and the Lord shut them in. And the flood continued for forty days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose and rose high and floated above the earth. And the waters prevailed and greatly increased, increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered, and the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, which would be about 45 feet. And all flesh on earth died that moved around the earth, birds and livestock and beasts and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils were the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, roughly a year, a half a year, excuse me. So um, here we have the flood coming. There's a lot of stuff in here. Again, uh, there are good commentaries on this. I don't mean to replace a commentary or a discussion on this, but I do want to point out some stuff on here. Um, again, they were shut in um, 40 days and 40 nights. Some people believe um, that, that yeah, the world was a Pangaea and all the continents were together at this time. This, this, the earth break and forth broke up, the, uh, broke up and um, pushed the, the plates apart, and that's how we have the continents now. I actually believe that. I think that probably was a uh, science say, would say, no, that's impossible. The plates have been around for millions of years and doing that. I will say this. If you were a scientist in 1900 and someone said that there were plates and they were floating on the mantle of the earth going around, you'd be an idiot. No one would believe you. If you just said that same thing in 1935, they would say you're an idiot. No, the earth is solid. It doesn't float. It doesn't move. If you said that in 1950, they would say no one really believes that. There's just these haters out there that don't, that don't believe it. Then 1960, 1965, oh, yeah, the earth does float on the, the pan, and there are plates, and there's a spreading plate and a compression plate, and the Atlantic is spreading out, and the Pacific is compressing. Yeah, we, and now if you don't believe in plate tectonics, you're an idiot. So, so what I'm saying is science, and I am a scientist, and I love science, and I, I think that science is the way of trying to find answers, but you need to understand science will tell you that it's not perfect and it's trying to find answers but it'll tell you an idiot if you don't believe the current answers are true, okay? It'll say, you, you, you're a religious bigot, or you just, you're a naysayer, you're a flat earther, you know, type thing. You just, you don't accept science at all. No, we accept science. It's just that we don't always accept it the way you, you want us to believe it. And you don't, yourself, you change. Things change over time. And so... I actually think that, the, that they flooded and it broke them apart and mankind spread out after the ark and the races divided at the Tower of Babel and people, so you get the differences there. But I'm not, I'm not sure I'd be a, a, a young earther, which says 6,000 years, although I'm not adverse to that. When you really look at recorded history, you don't really have any recorded history beyond that that time period, 4,000 BC. Um, but the Earth's 50 or 100,000 that this happens, maybe sounds a lot more likely to me than the millions of years. So what about the animals and stuff like that? Again, I don't want to get into, and I, I know that I, my, my goal is not to alienate you, it's to discuss things with you and just just share things. But there's, there's two lines of thought that, that things have, have gone slowly over time or that, that the, the world has really been marked by epochs. Um, and catastrophism. If you look that up, uh, Wikipedia will say this tends to be a biblical belief, a belief that, that catastrophes like the flood shape things. And so maybe the dinosaurs and stuff weren't able to survive after the flood. They died off before. They're buried and the remains are in there. I don't know about all that. I'm just saying don't just write things off because science says that it's wrong, okay? And don't just write things in because the Bible says something happened. I, though I hold the Bible as the word of God and it is true and it is inerrant. But I'm just saying be open to thinking about what's going on here. Um, 
and realize that something, if this is an historical account, then there's implications about this, okay? This tells us the story of mankind in reality, what has happened. And the idea that we evolved from, and then went through cavemen and everything, is not taught in scripture, okay? It's taught that we were created in the image of God, that we were fully functional early on, that we tilled the ground, that we had agriculture, that we raised animals early on, that we had the implements for tool making and other stuff, we did that early on, that we were able to build a very sophisticated boat, ark, early on, okay? And the ancients were not dummies. I mean, we, we, tend to think, we tend to think that the ancients were evolved out of the savages and stuff like that. And we get the, some of the stories of the early Bronze Age uh, and early Iron Age with uh, David and, uh, and uh, the Philistines and, and um, we, uh, Goliath and the, and the battles there and stuff. And we tend to think that they were primitive, okay? They weren't. You read the Psalms and you understand that David was not a primitive, okay? That there's a sense of justice and right and wrong and, and um, taking of blood and stuff like that was different per se, but not his heart, not his mind and soul and his love for God. So, so we see that with Noah too. Do not ascribe to the ancients ignorance or superstition or not being able to do things. It's important for us to understand because this story tells us it's about your relationships. It's about your relationships with God. And God has always taken care of things. Other things I want to point out here, it's easy to go over, is this was an awful destruction. There were a lot of people who died. There were a lot of animals who died. Um, and God cared for those animals too. He, he, he cares for humans differently, mankind differently, but he, he cares for the earth itself. Not just the animals, but the vegetation. He cares for what he's created. And this grieved him that he had to do it. But he also understood that there was no, there was no other way. This is the way he needed to move forward. Otherwise, mankind would have been in misery forever. And so we question why God would do certain things. We question the goodness of God, if he would wipe out a whole, um, a whole, the whole earth, really. And we say, what's in this? And, and we say, because God has a plan for his people. He wants, and his people are not a chosen people, okay? They, God has chosen them, but we choose God too. God calls to us and say, you want to be one of my chosen people? Come in, come in. And we see that through scripture. In fact, we see that over and over again where there are people on the outside who come in, okay? We see, we, see, uh, we, want to see, we see this in Genesis a lot as we go through this, and we'll talk about that as we go. But God always calls, become one of my chosen. Become, the, you know, and, and we have a responsibility to respond to God. I, I like to think of it as uh, sort of, um, it, it, all analogies fall short. But, um, but, you know, when I proposed to my wife, I knew she was going to say yes. I knew it. And yes, she had to say yes. I, I didn't ask until I knew she was going to say yes. I mean, the other people were a little more dicey, but we, we knew each other and we loved each other and we waited, okay, at that time. But I still had to hear the yes. And she could have said no, okay. 
So when we talk about God choosing us, there's also a responsibility for us again to choose him. God calls to us and says, come in and be one of my chosen ones. And so um, the pain and the suffering here is caused by a loving God to call his people in. And these people, it talks about Noah being a preacher at that time too in other parts of scripture. Noah preached righteousness. People weren't listening. And God knew that no one would listen in the environment that was in. We don't know all the details. We just know that's true. How do I know all this? Well, God gave his only begotten son to die. You know, um, again, we've lost a grandson recently. And you question, why God? Why, you let, why would you let a baby be born into the world, suffer for 40 days, and then die? Um, and leave the parents behind to, to grieve, uh, and others too. And I have to say, I don't understand, but I do understand that God let his own son die. Um, and he could have prevented it. Now, he was not a child. He wasn't an innocent. And it's like they, he was innocent in the sense of never sinning, but he was not an innocent and not even knowing right or wrong before any choices were made. And that makes it all the more poignant because God chose to lay down his life being fully man, knowing everything, being in the prime of life with the whole world spread out before him, chose to die for us, to bring us to God. So I know God is good because of that event. I don't understand everything, but you trust that God himself knows what pain is. And he would not do something another way if he could avoid that pain. But sometimes that pain and suffering is part of the redemption of a fallen world. So there we have, we have here in the flood. In the end of the flood, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. And the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters, of, uh, and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. So now it's like you know, 300 days into this. Yeah, the 40 days and then 150 and then 150. So you're actually 340 days into this. Um, and in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And the, in the 10th month, the first day of the month, the tops of the mountain were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he made and sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro, from, and the, the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to the ark, and the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to them in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days and set forth the dove and did not return to him anymore. And so we see the dove being a sign of peace now and the olive branch being a sign of peace that comes from this. Uh, I don't know if it was at that time, you know, in the, uh, the early history right after this, whether that was a sign too. We don't really see that, but we, we do know, recognize the dove as a sign of peace now. And that Noah had to wait, and he had to wait even after it came aground. He had to wait, and he had to wait. Um, and again, this is just something I... I, I have to say, I've not really delved deep into this section 
except to say that it's just a historical account. There was a lot in there and probably would be very profitable to wonder about what went on in their lives at this time. Um, in the 600 in first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that you, uh, that with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast and every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from youth. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So there's a lot here. I'm trying to sort of sort through some of this. And some of as I, as I uh, study passages over and over again, I see new things. Um, I will say this, that what you see at, um, at the beginning of Adam and Eve, um, you do see families, but you really don't see families. You see individuals. You see a line of individuals being passed down. With Noah and the ark and his sons, he takes his wife and his sons. You see the beginning of families, and it actually talks about that in verse 19. Everything that moves on earth went out by families from the ark. So he starts talking about the families that are there, and we're going to talk about that in a bit, um, and probably in continue on that. And then it actually works into clans, uh, the, the clan of Abraham. And then it actually works into nations, the nation of Israel coming out. Um, and then it works into the kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of Christ, uh, the, the uh, kingdom of, of the sons of God, the city of God uh, that comes out. And so we'll talk about that in a bit, but let's come back to this. So he, he built, Noah built an altar, took uh, uh, some of every clean animal and uh, offered them on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Even though, it says here for his intentions, but in some translations it says, even though the intentions of man's heart is evil from youth. The truth is, is we want our own way. So what is evil? You know, what is evil? It's, it's rebellion against God, we say. But what is rebellion against God? Rebellion against God is wanting our way, not God's way, okay? And so this all talks about so. So our attention is evil from the start. When he says that, we say, well, I'm not evil. I'm not evil. You want your own way. That's the, the issue here is whose way, whose heart is governing what you do, whose desires are governing. He said, well, it's natural for me to have my own desires. Yeah, exactly. It's natural for you to have your own desires. That's the problem here, okay? What happens is it's natural for us to want these things. So, um, And we're going to talk about... Um, conflicts about people in a bit but but right now there's he says even though 
there's this, this intention towards evil. I'll never do this again, okay? And, and, and it was a step that was taken because um, barring the world could not, why couldn't God just take Noah and make Noah the family that Abraham was and stuff like that? Well, the evil had increased on earth so much that that wasn't possible, okay? Well, God could have done a miracle. Yeah, he did. I mean, that the problem was is he's not going to change people's hearts, okay? So God, it talks about at times people, God hardening people's hearts and stuff like that, but it never talks about hardening the hearts before the people have hardened their hearts. So there are choices to be made, and those choices have implications. And there was no way that this world was, this uh, primeval site was turning back. So he starts again, and he does some things differently, okay? Why did he do them differently at the beginning? I don't know. I don't have these answers, okay? I wish I had, was able to say, I know what God did, God did that. But, but, but I can tell you what scripture says, okay? I know this, that he did things differently after this, and we're going to talk about that. But he also says, while earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God, God restores nature, uh, creation, into its proper place and says, never again will there be this scale of calamity, okay? It does talk about the end days. Jesus said, unless those days be cut short, no one will survive. And it, uh, and, and um, first or second, second Peter, I believe it is, it says the earth will be destroyed by fire in the second time. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, but not, not, not what's happening here. Uh, although this is an echo of the final day of judgment too. And God blessed Noah and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill and so do the earth. This is the interesting thing. You see this. You saw this with Seth. You saw this, you know, Adam and Eve. You see the be fruitful, multiply, fill and so do the earth. And also God made him in his own image. You see that in the generations of uh, the heavens and the earth. You see that. Uh, then you see that with Seth. And now you see that with Noah. The be fruitful, multiply, and also God being made in God's image. The fear and dread of you shall be upon every beast uh, in earth and upon every bird of heaven and upon everything that creeps on the ground and the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives in you shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, that is its blood. And from your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man. And from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning of the life of man. Um, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. And then I have a note down here. This is where government is instituted. So let's talk a little about several things here. So he did, he starts with the blessing, be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. He gives man dominion in a way he did not give man dominion in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, before the fall, man tended the garden and worked with it. Um, and then after the fall, we, we get this sort of like, well, there's, the ground's going to, is cursed because of man and it brings forth thorns and stuff, but we don't really hear a lot more about it. Here we see man being given full dominion of the earth. So we have a responsibility. We're given dominion of it, but we have a responsibility here too. And so sometimes we get people that, that uh, you know, I, um, I, I've, I've, I once had a parent say, 
uh, who was abusing their child. Say, don't I have a right to discipline my child? Well, yeah, you do, but you don't have a right to abuse them, okay? And you get the same thing with the earth here sometimes. The earth, I can do what I want. I mean, we've been given dominion of it. We're there to, we, we're there to extract them, you know, and, and do what we want, you know. And, yeah, nature's there. We don't want to poison ourselves, but aside from poison ourselves, it's for our use and benefit. That is not true, okay? We're given dominion over it. But we're also, and it is for our joy, and, but it's also a responsibility to take care of things, too. And so we are wrong to take this passage as a dominion passage above all other stuff. It is a responsibility passage that we have. Um, you know, this whole discussion we get into from time to time is about rights and responsibilities. So I have a right to do what I want to do, okay? But I also have responsibilities, but I, and so many times the responsibilities are, are not looked at. And here, this is the right of dominion, but there's a responsibility too. Um, and one of the responsibilities is that we're now given the ability to judge other men. In fact, we're not only given the ability to judge another man, we are told we have to judge another man. Okay, that's why I say this is the institution of government. Uh, and it says... Um, from, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. God commands us to do that. Now, this is not a discussion about capital punishment, okay? Capital punishment, this is capital punishment, don't get me wrong. But there is, there is a, uh, I, I, want, I don't want to say evolution, because that we're coming up fraught with things, but there is an evolution of, of of morals and ethics and stuff like such like that, that I'm not saying that I do think there is a time for the death penalty. Okay, it's not for everything, and but there, and, and it's not applied uniformly, and it's sometimes applied on innocent people. Okay, the death penalty should never be applied. In fact, scripture was very good to fence that in. You could not have the death penalty for someone that said there were two cooperating witnesses to the event that led to that, that caused the death penalty that agreed with each other and were credible witnesses, okay? You just couldn't do that. So sometimes people get convicted and go into the death penalty for, I think, how in the world? Just Mercy. If you want to watch Just Mercy, it's a great example of this could have never happened if they just followed the biblical mandate for witnesses, okay? But they didn't. So, uh, uh, but, but I don't want to. I don't want this to devolve into that uh, discussion of the death penalty because that's not what's here. The reason that is given here is it is the prime example of something that would a government could do. The death penalty. That I mean, you can't do more than take a person's life. Okay, you just can't. Okay, and so this is where government's instituted. How do you know that, Bill? Well. Okay, so you see the Ten Commandments. It says, do not murder, right? But what does Jesus say? You've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you that if you hate someone, that you're murdering him. Uh, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, having sex outside of marriage, okay? But I tell you that if you look lustfully on a woman, you've committed adultery. The Ten Commandments are are biggies. They're the biggies. They're sometimes they got the... That, that set up the boundaries and, and categories, but they're the worst of the worst. 
You can still break a Ten Commandment when not killing somebody. You can do it by hating them. You can still break the adultery commandment by lusting for someone. Here he's talking about a government issue. That man has the ability to judge other man. That ability was not there before the flood. Before the flood, God judged man directly. God said, Cain said, my punishment is too much for me to bear. Someone will kill me. And he says, no, if someone does that, I will avenge on you seven times. And Lamech at the end says, mankind, I will, 77 times that. And, and the idea is that there is no justice there. It's what the evil man makes of it. In fact, that's, it's a great example of why we have government. We have government to restrain evilness and to give appropriate punishment for the evilness. Okay? And so government is there. So, so he instituted, after the flood, instituted government to keep this from ever happening. There's government, and government implies nations. So the government and the nations come together. We see the Tower of Babel. We'll talk about this later. But this is one of God's safeguards to keep mankind from destroying itself again. And nations provide checks and balances. The righteous nations thrive and are able to um, control, you know, the, the decadent nations uh, are destroyed. And lest you think that all the righteous nations are the ones that destroy decadent nations, sometimes that happens. But many more times it's, a, uh, it's a, another decadent nation. Okay, so the Syrians were horrible, uh, and they were they destroyed a lot of tribes. But then the Babylonians, who were horrible but not as horrible as the Syrians, swallowed them up and destroyed them. And then there were the Persians, who were not bad, were were, were bad, but not as bad as the Babylonians. And so, so you get the uh, you get this this pull and tug, and nations evolve and and get better. Okay, and worse, you get horrible nations. You get nations that destroy and maim stuff, but you don't get that on a worldwide scale. You get the nations coming together and keeping one another in check, and you get government. Okay. What is government? Government is a structure of authority that keeps people able to work together and adjudicate their differences. See, this is the problem. We all have our own will. It's not just that my will is contrary to God's will at times. It's that my will is contrary to other people's will, too. I see a certain house that I want, but someone's already living in it, okay? And if there's no, you know, so, so what happens when there's this resolution? And you, and, and you say, well, you guys could got to work it out. Well, what if you can't work it out? Or what if the person doesn't want to work it out? What if the person's like Lamech, and they say, I will do what I want to do. Who on you, Okay. Government is a structure that says the society, people agree to a certain set of rules, and, and uh, they don't always agree. Sometimes there's a king and stuff, but, but there's always rules given, okay? The Code of Hammurabi was very similar to the Ten Commandments. All, all truth is God's truth. There are certain things that are always wrong. It's always wrong to, um, to kill, you know? It's always wrong to murder, um, it's always wrong to, you know, steal. It's always wrong to lie, you know. And so government codifies that. But, but governments, there's, government, there's so much problem. In fact, today we see the difficulties with governments and police and stuff like that. Yes, because governments are made by fallen people. And there's always going to be badness in them. 
The point is, is not to get rid of them. The point is to get rid of the badness. The whole point is to have just government, to have just rule, to have, but to be protected about from people that don't want just government and just rules. Uh, one of the problem, problems with, I think, that we were experiencing in our society is we, one of our tenets was um, innocent until proven guilty. But anymore, people make their own judgments and they don't rely on the courts today. And they say, well, the courts are corrupt. Then reform the courts, but it's not for you to do that individual judgment. It's the government thing. So I, I go on there, it's, it's government is a gift from God. And, and, and government was instituted here and it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists government resists what God has appointed. And will, those who resist will incur judgment. For he is your God's servant for your good, says down here. And then, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That was written by Paul when Noah I mean, no, when uh, Nero, <laughs> too many ends with four letters, Nero was emperor of Rome. So, um, uh, and Nero later had him beheaded. I think first time he was probably freed, second time he was probably beheaded again by Nero, both times. Um, and uh, you could say them the breaks, but it's not the breaks. It's the, the truth is, is that government makes mistakes, okay? But government is still good. And to try to get rid of government is wrong. Okay? To try to get rid of evil in government is good. And to get rid of an evil government is good. But government itself is good. And we need to realize that. Um, now, I'm not saying that big government is good as opposed to little government. I'm not saying that democracy is good as opposed to communism or socialism. I'm saying government is good. All government is good when it strives to help people live lives well, okay? Everybody has a different way and idea of how life is best lived well. And I'm not going to get into that. It's way beyond the scope of what we're doing now. But I do want to tell you that government is a gift of God. Even bad government is, is, is helpful, okay? Um, the problem is the world gets better and worse at the same time. Um, the government of Nazi Germany could not have killed um, seven or eight million Jewish people unless it had a well-functioning infrastructure in place and that it was able to exert such authority that where people were afraid of disobeying it even if they knew it was wrong. And so that government was evil, but it had good too. And many people lived good lives and, and lives under it, and yet it had to be removed because of the evil, the, the rottenness and evil that would, that would kill somebody, you know, just... I, I, you know, um, the hatred, the bigotry against the Jewish people, which is, which is, and and the, but government is good. I have to come back to, and the good governments pushed back, and God gave them the power to destroy Germany, and because of that, other safeguards have been instituted to keep that, to keep that peace and stuff like that, and one of them is the reformation of the nation of Israel that came out of that uh, because Israel needed that refuge. So I, again, I, I, I know I, I probably, I probably need everybody right now on one topic or another on what's going on here, but, but I want you to understand what's going on. We, the, the, the people that, 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 um, 
The institutions are not evil. It's the people in them and some of the policies and stuff, and that needs to be corrected. So we get this. Um, again, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply on it. We're going to get into that. Um, and then um, God makes a covenant with no one creation. We're going to cover this next week. I'm going to uh, close this up right now. But then God said to Noah and his sons, with him. Behold, I establish my covenant with you. Again, second time the word covenant is mentioned is mentioned just before the flood. In this passage, interestingly enough, it's mentioned seven times, and it's mentioned three times in prelude to the sign of the covenant, and then three times after that. So let's talk, let's read this. Then God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you. As many came out of the ark, for it, it is for every beast on the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant I will make between me and you and every living creature that is uh, with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the rank in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, yeah, I will see it and will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all the flesh that is on earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and you and all the flesh that is on the earth. So let's say there's a lot in here. We'll probably come back to this next week as a starting point. First time covenant is mentioned. There are, we're going to talk a little about covenant dispensational theology. But some people say there were covenants before. This was a covenant of creation, covenant with Adam and Eve. And again, we'll deal with that next week. This is the first mention of a covenant. And uh, there, so every, we want to organize things. You saw how I tried to organize the generations of. And I think that's an organization that was there that I saw that someone else actually organized it. But someone organized it, okay? You know, someone sat down and, and structured things. Someone put these. So we want to understand these things. And so we try to have structures. And there's two major structures um, uh, of biblical scholars. Uh, think of two major areas. And one is dispensationalism. And uh, that's that God dealt with mankind in different ways, different dispensations. Before the flood, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to uh, uh, Moses, from Moses to King David. So you see the administration of individuals, the administration of families, the administration of clans with Abraham, the administrations of nations with Israel, and then and the kingdom uh, with David and onward um, as a prelude to the messianic kingdom. And so you see the dispensations and God deals with things in different ways. Uh, and then covenants are sort of like agreements that in each of these areas have covenants with them. There are covenants mentioned for each of these, except again, the first one that we'll talk about why there may or may not be a covenant before this one. Um, and they emphasize continuity. The covenants actually build on each other. They enlarge, they become enlarged. And so um, it's sort of like marriage, okay? When you get married, you're the same person. There's a lot of continuity in your life. <laughs> Get up every day, go to you. But there's discontinuities there too. There's differences because now two are one and you have differences there. 
So you can look at how life is the same or how life is different. It's not to say one is better than the other. Now, there are certain hazards associated with each one. Um, one that I will say that is pretty much gone now from dispensationalism, but the, the biggest one uh, was that there were two types of salvation. Um, that before Christ, if you obeyed the law, you were saved. And after Christ, through Christ Jesus. So the Jewish people, they obeyed the law to be saved. And after Christ, you were saved by grace. I would have to say, no, that's true. There's only one heaven, there's only one way to God. And Abraham is the father of us all, the father of faith, it says in Romans. Um, and so there are not two different ways to get to God. There's only ever really been one way to get to God. Um, dispensational theology does not teach that anymore. Progressive dispensationalism is very close in covenant theology on that point. That, now, did he deal with Israel different than he deals with the church? Yes. But that's, and that's the differences, and that's where dispensationalism can bring some, some um, granularity, some focus to the differences and what that means and stuff like that. But there's the continuity, too. It's always been God, God saving us, God reaching out to us, God sacrificing for us. Um, and so we're going to talk a little about covenant and uh, dispensational theology next week because uh, those are the two major ways people structure scripture. And we're also going to talk a little about biblical theology. Okay, that does not mean you're if you don't believe in biblical theology, you're unbiblical. Biblical theology is the study of the Bible as revelation unfolds. Okay. And from that comes covenant theology or dispensational or any other kind of theology you want. But biblical theology says this is what it was at this time in Scripture and how it unfolds. Uh, and I think it's actually the greatest lens to look to see what's true and what's not true because that's how the Scripture was written, and it was written for a reason that way. So we're going to come back. This is the end here. Five generations before, and we are now in the third of that those generations. And next week, we will go into the generations of the sons of Noah and then the generations of Shem after that. And then we'll start talking about uh, Terah and Abraham and then Ishmael, Isaac, and Saul, Jacob. So thanks for hanging in there. Long lesson. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for watching over us. We thank you for uh, your great love to us and um, your providence and showing us these things that we can see in our own lives um, applications in our own lives of how these godly men, how ungodly people live too, for things for us to avoid and things for us to strive for, and your great love to us. And uh, we just thank you for the rainbow that we can look at each time and uh, realize that you love us, you care for us. And so we ask that you draw us closer to you and help us love you more. We ask in your name. Jesus. And I realize I have one last thing to say. And we'll cover back on there, but the rainbow is the sign of the covenant. God gives a sign of the covenant. The sign is a memory for us, just like a ring may be the sign of a memory for, for marriage. Um, the sign is the rainbow. And so when we see that, we remember that God loves us. We don't remember the flood. We remember that God loves us. Mm -hmm. Have a great week.